Well, good morning, Grace family. We hope your experience of Holy Week last week was really meaningful for you, wherever you were. Last Sunday was special indeed, and we were so happy to see so many folks at our in-person services on Sunday, some whom we haven't had the opportunity to see in a while. It was definitely a great day of celebration. And as opportunities for gathering continue to open up, we hope we will be seeing more and more of you. We have been so grateful for how God has been sustaining us as a church during this challenging season. And we are praying that our collective spiritual appetite has grown through this time. My prayer has been that our appetite for God's word will continue to grow and that God would stoke a passionate fire in our hearts for prayer, and that we would increasingly become awake to opportunities to love and serve one another inside and outside our church family. You know, I think sometimes we can get to a place where God's calling for us seems a bit complicated or or maybe just less clear than we would like, which is one of the reasons I love the passage we will be exploring this morning in John 15. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture and one that has been literally staring me in the face every day for the past 19 plus years when I come to work each day as it's framed on my office wall right in front of my desk. The clarity and elegant simplicity of the call of this passage has always been incredibly liberating and life-giving to me. I'm really looking forward to diving into it again. And I'm so pleased to tell you that we have the privilege of having Daniel Watts back with us today to teach through this text for us this morning. Well, before we dive in, let's just take a moment to bring ourselves before the Lord and ask him to prepare our hearts for what we're about to receive. So wherever you're at, whatever you are contending with right now, just bring it to the Lord and ask him to meet you there. Father, thank you so much for your faithful persistence with us, your loyal love to us, your long-suffering and forgiving nature. Thank you that there is nothing beyond your redemptive touch. Lord, now as we are about to open up your word, would you give us receptive hearts? Would you give us ears to hear your voice? Do whatever you need to do to draw us to yourself. And we thank you that what you have begun in our lives, you are faithful to carry it on to completion. What an incredible promise we can be confident in. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.
So today we'll be looking at John 15, where Jesus describes himself as the vine. So read along with me. This is John 15, 1 through 8. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Today, we're looking at one of the most familiar passages in the Gospel of John, the last of the I Am passages where Jesus announces I am the vine, and you are the branches. Marla and I live in Temecula, and to the east of our home are rolling hills covered with literally hundreds of acres of grapes. Over the 20 years that we've lived there, we've watched the rhythm of the vines. Right now in Temecula, the vines are budding with new green growth. And over the next weeks, they'll send out branches, they'll bloom, and they'll set on fruit. They'll be watered and fed over the summer until they'll have grapes set on and um, have beautiful fruit hanging from the vines. In August, they'll go through the vineyard in the most fascinating practice, and they will actually take about half of those clusters and cut them off of the vine, leave them on the ground to rot and decompose. Then in late September or October, they'll harvest the grapes in the vineyards, and they'll do that at night so that it minimizes the sun damage to the grapes. And then in November or early December, they will trim back all the branches all the way back to the rootstock trellised along the vines, and then the whole cycle will begin again. And that's the image that Jesus is using in John chapter 15, and it's where we're going to look today. In John 14, it concludes uh, at the end of the Last Supper, Jesus announces that it's time for them to leave. 
and they're going to move out of the room where they were eating together, the Passover meal. In John 18, it has Jesus and the disciples coming up out of the Kidron Valley onto the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. So it's unclear as to where chapters 15, 16, and 17 actually take place. It may have been in the upper room after the Passover meal had finished, or it may have been as they were walking into the Kidron Valley. I like that idea because if they did that, they would have looked up at the temple in Jerusalem, and at the front of the temple was the emblem that included the golden grapevine, which was a symbol of Israel, the people of God. John 15 begins with Jesus making the statement, I am the true vine. When we hear that, we think of um, wine, uh, vines, uh, wine, we think of um, fruitfulness individually, we think of a kind of personal piety and spiritual disciplines and individual spiritual fruit that comes in the life of a Christian who abides in Christ. But I think Jesus had something different in mind, and I certainly think that the disciples would have understood it a bit differently. And the reason why is, is because in the Old Testament, the vine and the vineyard was the symbol, a symbol, very common symbol for Israel itself. So when Jesus mentions the vine, the disciples had to think in some way he was speaking about Israel itself. Here are just a few examples of passages in the Old Testament that refer to Israel as the vine or the vineyard. In Psalm 80, verse 8, it reads, You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. In Jeremiah 2.21, I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt, wild vine? In Hosea 10, verses 1 through 2, Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. As his fruit increased, he built more altars. As his land prospered, he adorned his sacred stones. Their heart is deceitful, and now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will demolish their altars and destroy their sacred stones. In Isaiah 3, verse 14, the Lord enters into judgment against the elders and the leaders of his people. It is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. And again, in Jeremiah 12, 10, many shepherds will ruin my vineyard and trample down my field. They will turn my pleasant field into a desolate wasteland. These are just a few select passages that talk about Israel as a vine or a vineyard. There are many more of them. Israel, the people of God, were like his own vineyard, tended by God himself. They were to produce fruitfulness cultivated by God. However, if you noticed in most of the passages, there's a theme of God's judgment against Israel. The, wine, the vine has not been fruitful and it's become wild and unfaithful to God. It's against that backdrop that Jesus claims himself in verse 1 to be the true vine. Jesus would take the place of Israel as the true vine with God the Father as the gardener. 
He and those in him, in verse 1, will bear the fruit that God always intended. And suddenly, the fruit that's mentioned six times in these eight verses takes on a little different meaning. It's not just the fruit of personal piety and godliness. It's the fruit that will make God's people a blessing to the nations, God's redemptive tool for the world. God had called Abraham and his descendants Israel to be his people. He called them to multiply, to settle in the promised land, and then to be a blessing to the nations, to the world around them. God had called Abraham and his descendants to set the world right that was suffering from sin all the way back to Adam and Eve. It was God's grand vision, his grand plan, to use his people Israel to redeem the world. They were to be his fruitful vineyard, and they had failed. Jesus, the true vine, would create a new people of God, made up of those who remained in him. They would bear the much fruit that God intended. And the criteria for being on the vine and a member of God's people was to believe and follow Christ, to abide in him, be fruitful, and be a blessing to those who don't know Christ. You see this kind of fruit in the lives of Christ's followers today. My wife, Marla, teaches second grade, and she has a young girl in her class who's seven years old, I'm thinking. When she was 10 months old, her parents were both killed in a car accident. She never remembers meeting her mother or father. Her grandparents took her in as their own. But when her grandpa was 62 years old, just a bit later, he died unexpectedly. And since then, her grandmother has been raising her all by herself. She's not that much older than my wife. It wasn't the life she had planned for, but it's the life of a faithful and godly woman. She's a blessing to her granddaughter, and her life of service and sacrifice is the kind of fruit that comes from those who abide in Christ. Christ goes on in verse 2 with the metaphor of pruning the vine. Jesus warns that those who are in him but do not have fruit will be cut off from the vine. He says, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Furthermore, those that do abide in him and there's evidence of fruitfulness in their lives, he prunes He writes in the second part of verse 2, while every branch that does bear fruit, God prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. This makes so much sense to me living in Temecula and watching how they manage the vineyards there. In August, with the beautiful fruit on the vines, they come through and cut half of the beautiful clusters off the vines and leave them laying on the ground to rot so that the remaining fruit will be of higher, better quality. And then in November, December, they cut the vines all the way back down to the stock and the root so that they'll be more fruitful in the next season. Pruning occurs when shoots grow out from the vine, um, when there's fruit on the vine, 
And God comes into our lives in the same way and prunes fruit out of our life. Jesus seems to indicate that we have God working in our lives, we're bearing fruit in our lives, but God in his wisdom decides to come in and cut it out of our lives so that we'll be even more fruitful. I've experienced this myself in my life. Some of you know I came to Christ as a young adult. God called me fairly quickly into a ministry with children. I was trained and equipped in an internship program. And my vision, my dream in life was that someday I would become the children's pastor of what was then one of the fastest growing mega churches in the United States. I had no idea that two years later, I would be appointed the children's pastor in that church. My first Easter as the children's pastor, we had nearly 2,500 children for our Easter services. And then, just eight months after taking up my new ministry role, a scandal enveloped the church, which eventually led to be being let go for really no fault of my own. I was crushed. Some of you were involved in my life then. I was devastated, and I felt severely pruned. But God had another children's ministry plan for my life that was certainly more fruitful beyond my imagination. When we abide in Christ, we can expect God to prune back some things in our life, even cut some of the fruit out of our life to make us more fruitful and productive in his kingdom work. And this is what happens when we abide in him, which is really the theme of this passage in John. Abide in him is mentioned seven times in eight verses. So we have to ask the question, what does it mean to abide in Christ? First, we can note that abiding in Christ is for the Christian. Jesus is speaking to his disciples about abiding or not abiding in him in verse 6 and 7. The challenge that he's issuing is to his followers who know him already. Jesus isn't giving a kind of formula for a full and fruitful life regardless of your relationship with him. You can't abide in Christ if you don't know him. If you've not already done so, he invites you today to come to him. For those who do know Christ, he calls us to abide in him. He says in verse 5 that we can do nothing apart from him. He's the person who brings fruitfulness in our lives. So how do we abide in Christ? I think there's some biblical qualities to the abiding life. Two of them are mentioned explicitly in this passage. The others are found right where you would expect them. If you want to know how abiding in Christ was understood by his disciples, then we'll read Acts and you'll see. When we identify these biblical principles for the abiding life, we'll find that the world offers an alternative. There's a conflict between abiding in Christ and abiding in the world. And you'll see that as we go. So bear with me. We're going to talk about the qualities of the abiding in Christ life. So first, abiding in Christ is not a one-way process. 
He's abiding in us. He says it in verse 4, remain in me as I remain in you. Abide in me as I abide in you. And he says it again in verse 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me and I abide in you, you'll bear much fruit. It means that one of the keys to the abiding in Christ life is recognizing that he's present with us all the time. Abiding in Christ becomes a reality when we simply recognize that Christ is with us always. Abiding in the world means being busy. In fact, we can get so busy and active that we completely forget about Jesus abiding in us. Children, careers, sports, our social life all seek to keep us so busy that we ignore the personal presence of Christ with us in each moment. A key to moving forward is slow down and carve out time each day to recognize the presence of Christ. Abiding in Christ means having his words in us. He says in verse 7, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. For the disciples, they had heard Jesus speak firsthand and they could recall what he had said. For you and I, we have the words of Christ in writing in the gospel accounts. We should read them. We should study them. We should memorize them and make the word of Christ part of our life. When we abide in the world, the words of the world will abide in us. Words are fed into us through video, podcast, Instagram, WhatsApp, Facebook, YouTube, Pinterest, and the incessant cable news networks. They even have television running at the pumps in the gas station to feed us more words. A way forward in the abiding in Christ life is to sign up for a Bible reading program like YouVersion.com. I've used it for years. I have the Bible read to me every morning. I read through the Bible that way every year, and I've done that for years. Grace has its own Bible reading program that you could start today and make the words of Christ part of our lives. If we look in the book of Acts, we find more ways that the abiding in Christ life is evident. Witnessing, people were always talking about Jesus Christ in the book of Acts. They talked about his death. They talked about his resurrection. The book ends in Acts 28 with Paul in Rome, people coming to visit him during the day, him explaining the prophets and the Old Testament and trying to convince them about the good news of Jesus Christ. Abiding in the world, we talk every day about COVID-19. How deep will UCLA go in the tournament? Who will win the Masters? politics, our children, we can go for days or even weeks and never even mention the name of Jesus Christ. A way forward in the abiding in Christ life is talk about Jesus. Just take this challenge to talk about Jesus once every day with somebody, your children, a spouse, neighbor at work with a friend, and be the kind of person who talks about Jesus Christ. 
Another feature of the abiding life in Acts was the signs and wonders that followed his followers. Abiding in Christ appeared to result in Christ working miracles around his followers, especially when they were talking to non-Christians about him. Abiding in the world, we follow the science. Science tends to deny the miraculous. We're in a society that really doesn't believe that a miracle could occur. So the way forward in the abiding in Christ's life is to make friends with a non-Christian and then find a time to talk to them about Jesus and pray for him to do something miraculous. Abiding in Christ meant talking to God frequently, in groups, individually. Prayer was a feature of the early Christian community. Places like Acts 1.14, where they all joined together constantly in prayer. Abiding in the world means talking on Zoom, Skype, or on your mobile phone. People are spending so much time on Zoom, I've heard references to being a zombie, like a zombie. I, I traveled a lot, and when I used to travel a lot, I saw men, especially businessmen, with three phones. When the plane landed, they'd all start ringing. We can spend more time with Christ and just a little less on our mobile device. You can't abide in Christ if you don't ever talk with him. Find a time each day to talk with Jesus Christ. Another quality of the abiding in Christ's life was worship and praise, even in the most adverse conditions. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas are in jail in chains, and it reads, they were praying and singing hymns to God. Abiding in the world would have us worship material things. The COVID-19 pandemic has shown us how much we worship our own physical health. We're consumed with our looks, our bank accounts, our vacation plans, and our material possessions. A way forward is to worship God by giving graciously of our financial resources, because where your treasure is, is where your heart is. Abiding in Christ led his followers to expect Jesus to give them guidance and direction, especially at key moments. Like when Peter was on the housetop in Joppa and God gave him the vision to go to the Gentiles, or in Acts 18 when the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, gave him the vision, and Paul stayed for a year and a half longer in Corinth because of that guidance. Abiding in the world means listening to the experts, follow the science, follow the leading of our political and religious leaders. And honestly, when we think guidance, we think CDC and not Jesus. Think of a crucial issue in your life at work with your spouse, children, ministry, and ask Jesus to give you guidance, especially in those important life decisions. And then finally, abiding in Christ meant in the early church, abiding with each other in a community. We read in places like Acts 2.42 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. 
All the believers were together and had everything in common. Five years ago, we would drive out of our house, close the garage door behind us with our clicker, work all day, and then come back home through the garage. Now we're even more isolated with so many of us working at home. Mobility, individualism, and the family have nearly destroyed the idea of a church community in the United States. At Grace, you have the opportunity to invest in a real community and give more of your time to your church family and to church relationships, more than just attending the Sunday service. Well, the COVID pandemic continues and we watch our society taking turns for the worse. If we abide in the world, we're caught up in the despair, the frustration and the hopelessness of all of that around us. And we say things like, if I'm vaccinated, why do I have to still wear a mask? If we're abiding in Christ, we see the current problems and issues and travail is actually an enormous opportunity. We, as the people of God, have the opportunity to offer a different kind of life to the world around us, a life abiding in Christ. When we choose to abide in Christ and not abide in the world, he promises to bring fruit in our lives, great fruit, not just for our own spiritual benefit, but so that we can be the people of God he intends us to be and a blessing to the world around us. The qualities of the abiding life in Christ are still essential today. Be in a real community with other believers. Ask for and expect Jesus to give you guidance in life. Make worship a lifestyle. Talk with Jesus regularly. Expect Jesus to do the miraculous in and through you. Talk about Jesus to others. Make his words part of your life. And don't forget, he is abiding in you. What gift of grace is Jesus my redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom. My steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I
Well, we hope you've been encouraged today. And as always, we invite you to keep the conversation going by considering the discussion questions at the end of this video. And with that, let me close our time with this benediction taken from Hebrews 13. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with every good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.